1: Restrictions apply.
2: Right now at Safeway, earn four times rewards points when you shop for participating items with Safeway for you. Shop for items like Frigo Crumbled Blue Cheese, Kellogg's Club Crackers, Coca-Cola, all liquid detergent or Utz chips and earn four times rewards points with Safeway for you. Offer expires January 4th. Plus, get select holiday essentials like gift wraps, bags, holiday decor, lights and more. Buy one, get one 50% off. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com or head in store for full offer details.
3: They went with three people and a friend of them and Lee Bowery to London. They were just kids at 17. And they tried to leave Australia. All the stupid things, all the abuse, we have to leave it behind. This is our adventure. In the interview, Lee Bowie told me, well, of course, it's a lot of time and nobody would walk around in this costume. My ideas will never get a following. He had his glasses on with makeup on. And it was so nice because as. Oh, yeah, we are just human beings as well. So he didn't pose; He was just totally real in his outfit. But I chose people who are very interesting, know about the history, can talk about the history, and wanted to be part of a book that really um, our admiration and our gratitude to what Li We did in his time without an internet stage with just the market where we could um, buy some textile, that was it. Welcome,
4: Bamba Delver. First of all, congratulations on your book, The Legacy of Lee Bowery, King of Queer. What I like to do in these interviews is really find out a little bit about the person I'm interviewing from their from their childhood, because it sometimes, you know, gives a little bit of a light in terms of, why they've come to this point in their life and why, in your case, why you've written this book. So um, when you were growing up, what mm-hmm. um, cultural influences were actually on you at that time? Well, I am,
3: I think, not a child from the 80s, but me, uh, and I didn't differ a lot from age, but I'm Dutch, yeah, so I come and still am from the Netherlands, so uh, my cultural background was during that time when I was growing up, like the face, blitz, no internet. Some people can't imagine that, but no internet. So I lived in a very small village nearby the sea um, in the Netherlands and I just had to cope with um, hoping that in the local uh, magazine shop from the nearby town, I saw something. So it was very small. And of course, the Netherlands is a small country. But as Dutch people, we think and we claim to be worldwide, globally thinking. But it's not, of course. We are just fishermen. So the the, time by then, it was just like it was small. The punk era, I liked very much. But then I was just a little bit too young. I was 13, 14. So I heard the punk era, like the Sex Pistols and Theater of Hate and all those groups with the small um, transistor radio said that was it. But the image culture, the the culture of pictures, videos, that was a little bit later. And that's when I really thought, oh, there's a whole wide world out there. So I think you can see about, about like this.
4: When I was 13 in 1972, I think it was, um, I saw Bowie on a TV Mm -hmm. program in Britain on Top of the Pops. And um, suddenly it was a realization about my own identity. I saw someone where I thought, oh, God, I belong in this world, not in the world of my parents. Did that happen to you in some way? And in what way did that happen?
3: Well, when you live in England, like, like you did, but it was just like we always have to wait in, until it came to us. So there was no global uh, television stations. We only had Dutch television. So it was always later. It was always, we were always behind. So Bowie was just like, not in our world. But the copies were, so the, the glitter bands, like Mutt and, and the Sweet and the Roots, who weren't like Bowie at all, but they were just copies of it, like commercial copies. We saw that, but we didn't see the original.
4: Yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to get at is because I lived in Britain, which I see, particularly in that era, as a much more repressed society than I imagine, You you can correct me, than I imagine the Netherlands was, during yeah. that era, for me, it was a trigger to my queerness, to understanding yeah. um, that I was gay. So I just wonder mm-hmm. if there was a trigger for you, and when that came.
3: Yeah, the trigger was what I liked, and this is why why I why I wrote the book. I never liked the the labels. I didn't could cope with that, so I always fought as a young child early. So. As a teenager, I always thought what I long to do, like being with a man or sexually uh, feelings for a man, has nothing to do with my identity or my life. So I couldn't relate to um, the label of uh, being gay. So that was out of it. but there was n- there was not another example. What I liked about Bowie because I saw men was that it was broader. It was more it was a new label. It was just like an alien. It wasn't, like a a small label and you had to go with it so this this is what i want and a lot of people think of the netherlands as a free-minded open-minded society it's true but only in comparison to other countries
4: what sort of journalism were you initially interested in and what was your reason to become a journalist
3: i think storytelling i like people i always interviewed people who lead a very individual life, that people didn't understand what they were doing. I like people who try to be an experiment themselves. And not only in a sexual kind of way, but everything. It's just like I always admire people who try to um, look for their own freedom, that like their individual liberties, but at the same time, they can... Um, they can create liberty for us all. And I like, or I always like to be as a journalist. I like to find out where they are.
4: So does this fit in with the idea of writing a book about Lee Bowery? Yeah,
3: yeah. The book really comes from still my admiration for him. Still, my um, uh, when I try to interview, I was in in London, and I was writing a book about gay and lesbian youth and. Uh, uh, when the Iron Curtain was still there, so I interviewed a lot of young people. And when I arrived on Gatwick, I saw the cover of the idea of Lee Bowery in his like like a pig. He was like a pig, and it was really because I was with a group of people. Ninety percent of the people I was with, gay people, I was with, they needed it. They didn't like it at all. It was just like, how can we get uh, acceptance? when somebody is doing like this, and I loved that. I said, oh, this is the mechanism I like, because I liked it. But why did I like it, and other people hated it? So when I was there two weeks uh, interviewing, I tried to uh, find him, because he was not known at the moment, at that moment, and he was very, he was just a London figure. He was just a London blubber. He was not on the television. He wasn't internationally known. And I was just trying to get near to him. Because I thought, this is an interesting man. This is not only about dressing up. It's not like uh, transvestism. It's not like uh, drag. It's totally something else. And I didn't get it. And I wanted to ask him questions so I could get it.
4: So you interviewed him at his flat in East London in the high-rise apartment um yeah. which had an amazing special look to it can you describe it to me or the 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 surrounds of this
3: interview but mm-hmm. uh, it was bad because i can just to cope with it uh, there was no telephone there eh? there was there were only the telephone cell so i just and i'm awful with finding my way and then in london it was horrible to find him so i i told him and i was really panic because it, it didn't It didn't give me a professional look. eh? I lost my way to interview. It wasn't very, very good of me being a professional journalist. So he said, no, no worry. I will stand in my balcony and I will wave at you. And I thought it was just a joke. But then suddenly in some area, because it was just totally gray area, on a high balcony in one of the flats, there was this this silver green figure waving. And I could see the sun on a sequence. And it was just like, oh, yeah, that's why I'm there. So I went to the elevator, and it was horrible. There was a man standing with a dog next to me, and he didn't like me because I said, uh, uh, well, can you help me? Because I want to uh, interview a person. He said, oh, who, do you, uh, who are you searching for? And I said, okay, I'll leave Bao, he didn't like it at all. No, it was just like, um, I would be very quiet when I just enter the door of Lee Bowery. So the elevator came up, doors open, and there he was. It was just like, of course I saw the pictures, but it was totally different when he was like there. And he was so kind, so friendly, so polite. And I couldn't figure that out. How can a person be that outrageous, be so polite? And he was very happy I was there because he was just screaming all the time. like Because, oh, now finally I'm getting through the world because you're the very first international journalist. So welcome. And then I had to sit on the couch and his, that, it was just like his own version of a club, I think. There were no furniture. It was horrible. It was cold and he was just moving around. And my photographer uh, just had a wonderful time because he posed. He was the best poser I ever met. <laughs> and the interview was just, yeah, come and sit near me on the couch. And he just talked. And he was very happy with my questions because at that moment, only people saw him as just a um, blubber an outrageous figure. And now he could talk about the way he thought about art and fashion and human being and sexuality. And he was totally happy. He was just really happy that these international visitors came in until I asked him about his boyfriend, Trojan, and the interview. And he didn't want, he didn't want to talk about it. And you could see it of all because he had these points on his head. He had these glasses on with makeup on. And it was so nice because I was, oh yeah, we are just human beings as well. So he didn't pose; he was just totally real in his outfits.
4: I think one of the, the the first times that I went to Commercial Road, where this um, flat was, um, was for an interview for Capital Radio. And I wanted to do an interview about a night out with Lee Bowery, and this was in the mid-80s. And uh, I'd met him a lot of times before that. But um, I what shocked me was because I knew him from club culture and I knew him to talk to in the clubs. Um, and, um, you know, when I first met him, we ended up snogging and it was like sort of almost, you know, a half a romance. And I I was so, you know, I was actually a little bit of a fan in a way, if I look back. And um, and when I went round from the um, Capitol Radio and, and did this feature, What shocked me was the difference between, as you say, his very quiet and intellectual persona um, on one side. And then this guy who goes out and the locals were throwing stones at him. He got such abuse. I mean, I was absolutely shocked at the, uh, the abuse. And this was then... It, the The prequel was the sort of intellectual side. Then came the abuse, and then we end up at the nightclub where the performer um really came out. One thing that I always thought about Lee and that I discovered in his flat was his work e- ethic.
3: Can you tell me a little bit about that? He was um, because um in the in the book, uh, we publish a little bit about uh, pictures, uh, so that is the. I always called it, it was the yellow, uh uh yellow outfit with the the, the box on his head, the wet points. And during the interview and during the posing, thing broke. He didn't he didn't mind at all. He just says, Oh, just wait a minute, I will glue it, and then it's finished, and then we go on. He didn't mind at all. It amazed me because the he was so different than the chinese I met, the designers I met, and I met a lot. And they were always into perfection. Lee wasn't into perfection. He was really good in the techniques. He was really um, uh, thinking about things with the people around him. eh? Because he was not only... I, I never knew that he made his costumes together with other people. But he thought about looks. And what amazed me is that, as you said, he was such an intelligent person. He knew what he was talking about. Two years before that, I went to the documenta in Germany and I tried to compare his looks during the interview with Oskar Schlemmer. And that was ages ago. And he knew him and he didn't mind. And he was really thinking about, oh, yes, maybe, maybe you're right, something. And I tried to figure it out during the interview where do you get your ideas from? Because there was no person there was no instagram there was nothing he just thought it out he was just thinking and he quiet and i really i saw him it's just like this is how you it's really you so there was no um as i said everything was real and then this image this outlooks and he was really thinking about techniques about fabrics about everything and i like that he He always, uh, during the interview, he liked to talk in symbolism. Like, as I told you about the sequence, eh? he had all kinds of sequence. And I asked him, why do you like sequence? What is it? Because there are hundreds on on him, eh? on his helmet, everything. And he said, I like the reflection of the sun. That can be a light as well. And it's so smart. But his his costumes and his
4: makeup Often had a meaning. I mean, later in life, with the spots and uh, and and so on. I mean, that was that that came later. And maybe we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to just ask you first of all, because you you touched on it about these costumes came to life when he got in them, and uh, I know that you say in the book that you saw the lifeless costumes at an
3: exhibition. Yeah, yeah. in Vienna. I hated it. I went to I think Vienna. I just saw one, and I had contact with the person, the woman who made this exhibition, and there there was his, were his costumes without him in it. And I hated it. I was so shocked. And if you want, it was just suddenly he turned into art, like fashionable, official art. And this this museum, this art museum, put his costumes to the stand but it was not about it it was never about his costumes he had to be in it so i didn't like the um uh, life was out it it was just flat it was just like oh there's a fabric with sequins on it well and then the other one everything happened because he was literally in it i think
4: it is about him being in it because I remember going round his, and uh, that was for an MTV feature. And I tried on. This was before he actually became like my sidekick on the chat show. But I went round his because MTV wanted to, you know, see what it's like on camera, and did a little feature about wearing one of his outfits. So he dresses me up in his outfit, and I am in no way <laughs> Lee Bowery. You know, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have it at all. What do you think? It is about him that managed to transport um, these costumes mm-hmm. in such a
3: powerful way. Well, that was a question for me as well. Eh? And I found it out because I discovered first my questions. Where did you get your idea from? And when, my, when I tried to contact Brownwin, his sister, it was such a very like an emotional talk. She really thanked me about writing this book. And she was willing to um, put a a youth remembering from and uh, Whitley, and then put a picture in it. And she describes um, that he, as a child, as a young boy, really liked the wrestlers, the mask wrestlers. And thinking about it, because he got a lot of bullied eh, in his his, uh, Australia days as a young kid. And the mask, when you put a mask on, you really feel someone else. And there it came from. So I think he was just like the, the yeah, the, the, what life, it, I always felt like him also during the interview as well in the beginning. It's just like, you have a history. You know what you're talking about. It's not just like putting on and clubbing because he was so different than the other Blitz people. The blitz people the blitz culture in the clubs were also about look at me he didn't mind at all because he had a he had a wonderful time and when i talked to him he just left his job at um, at a, a, a fast food uh, a shop and it was such different how can somebody during the daytime work there and at night doing this and then i spoke to Ann Holt, and she moved with him from Australia to London, when they were seventeen, and the picture C provides in the book is just a very vulnerable, very like emotional boy. Emotional young boy. This is not the Lee Bowie I met. Also, from his stature, it's just like he's not fat. We were talking about fatness, and what I liked about him, and this had really got to me as a young, young person, young human being. He had an answer to the bullies because he explained, well, okay, um, of course I do this. I make it even bigger. Every bully, because I was bullied as a person, as a child as well, you tend to feel small. You try to get small and you try to get invisible Didn't do that. He put himself on the platform. He put himself on the club, even on the streets and dealt with the abuse and even made it bigger. He didn't give him, when I love that, the courage to do this. Did Anne Holt talk
4: about what you mentioned in the book as the incredible effect that Lee has had on how people think about art and fashion? She must have, because of being with him at such an early age and coming to London at the start, uh, she must have witnessed or um, followed, let's say, Lee's transformation over those mm-hmm. over those years so what did she say about
3: that well it was very strange because i in, in, in my instagram account i uh, uh said there, there was this book coming and then i got a message three days before the deadline of ann holt and of course i knew her name and she says can i join in can i write and of course this is just a, such a chance for me as a journalist and what she says is okay Um, they went with three people and a friend of them and Lee Bowie to London. They were just kids at 17. And they tried to leave Australia. All the stupid things, all the abuse, we have to leave it behind. This is our adventure. So um, they didn't have money at all. And then there was a fight, I remember, between Lee and this friend. And, And she says, well, it was very hard for me to get to stay in touch with Lee, because he was just like a rocket. And in the beginning, it's just, she uh, also gave me a kind of um, a few uh, drawings, of his first drawings, and it looks just like a real
2: designer.
3: This was Natalie Bowie, who came out of this chaos. So what I think, and what she describes, is just that that wasn't the whole of him. Nobody could stop him when he just... Went into this flat, they lived together. And then when he found his way in the clubs, in the gay scene, in the blitz scene, meeting Trojan, meeting boy George, meeting all those people, and then he was out. I mean, you he can... met
4: he met all those people that was you know the the uh early 80s, yeah. Um, and London was a very special place in the early 80s. And you mentioned the Blitz documentary, which really gives you an idea of where London was at that period. And this explosion that was taking place against a background of homophobia, racism, sexism, you name it. You know, the 80s was, apart from the music, I always say, pretty shit, you know. And London was, of course, the place where, in pockets... You could really be who you wanted to be. So how much did all of that play into the success in terms of allowing Lee Barry to become Lee Barry?
3: I think when I put all the pieces of the puzzle together, I think that he was just waiting for it as a small child there, huh? waiting not to be recognised, but to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a wrestler, a master wrestler. Because his sisters. he he loved this program. And I remember as a kid, I didn't like it. I thought it was weird, all those men hurting each other. But he loved it. And he loved the playful. He loved the stage aspects of it. But he loved the costume. So I think that he just... As an Australian kid, he was just thinking about those fantasy. He knew about punk. He knew about the Blitz. He came into London, and then he went. But it's not uh, what I uh, felt, because I was walking around in the 80s in London as well. It wasn't a success. People really didn't admire him at all. Because he performed like, I think, really scary, what he did, with with blood and with Nicola being pregnant, he's just like, my God, what are you doing? Like safety pins in his cheeks. I didn't get all his ideas. But when he died and years after that, people saw him as a big influence. So it turned. It wasn't in the beginning, but it turned. And the gay movement, uh, as I met in the 80s, um, it was just trying to be accepted because that was clause 28 eh? there was it was very dangerous and my interviews with a lot of young people they really feared for the police for getting thrown into the police getting thrown out of the schools and it was a really dangerous place and of of course ruled uh, england eh? but what i liked about lee he didn't have that same reaction as the gay movement did He didn't adjust himself. He just explored himself. But a lot of the gay movement didn't like it at all.
1: I know fitness is important, but I don't have time to keep up with all the fads and celebrity workouts that come and go. I need something backed by real science that will get real results and fits into my schedule. Caliber has been a lifesaver. It's a science-based fitness coaching program covering strength, nutrition, and healthy habits, completely customized to my needs and abilities. All I did was fill out their online assessment, and Calibre did the rest. The best part is, I'm not in it alone. Calibre paired me with an expert personal trainer who checks on my progress and keeps me motivated and on track. And I'm not the only one getting results. Calibre is top-rated on Trustpilot with 4.9 out of 5 stars. On average, members achieve a 20% or better improvement in their body composition by week 12 of the program. Start a science based fitness program you'll actually stick with. Get $100 off at caliberstrong.com slash podcast. That's caliberstrong.com slash podcast.
2: Trying to grab
1: all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more, like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today.
4: He stood outside of all those things. And maybe I can sort of put that into context, because when I started with working for MTV, um, there was a big meeting before I was actually on air, before the channel went on air. And that meeting was, they found out that I'm gay, and the meeting was, can I be gay on MTV? Mm-hmm. And the conclusion was, as long as I didn't say I was gay on MTV. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the era of Clause 28. It was actually, it, it came up about a year after So this was, you know, bubbling up and uh, Thatcher had already made very anti-gay statements in the press. And so it was a very difficult era for anybody to survive and uh, have a job. Now, of course, I couldn't stop myself being open. So, you know, that was that was a little bit difficult in that way. Mm -hmm. But there was a problem. And when Take the Blame started, um, people were shocked and intrigue but after six episodes when i was told you have to make it less gay and so what i did is i invited the communards julian clary and nina Hagen, because i thought she was mm-hmm. a lesbian i thought okay mm-hmm. i'm gonna make no, it more not. gay <laughs> you know just to be a child yes. i suppose but just to make my point point. and then the mansion director screamed get those faggots off the channel and that was the end of lee And somehow I survived and MTV changed. And MTV was a modern TV station. I can't imagine what it must have been like to work in a bank, to work for, you know, like another TV station. And Mm -hmm. Lee stood outside of all that and he didn't have to care. And I think, you know, you mentioned his um, performances and his performance art. I think a lot of what what he could do was a reaction to the mainstream of society and a reaction to how people reacted to him.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I remember your program when you had these light bulbs next to you and I I always wondered did he do it? And he was just like, oh, you know, I did it with the battery here and this is like this. He was, was logical, and you're right, eh? He didn't he didn't have a contract with anyone, it's just himself. He was just exploiting everything. And it's very good to look back at the MTV era because there's a lot of changes. Most of the times we forget it, but when you see about queerness and gayness now in music, in art. It's huge. But what still I like, because the interviews with the people in the book are really is just like, I chose people who don't do drag. Because Lee wasn't about drag. And it's just like, um, those ideas really evolved. And you have to be, I think you have to be very strong to be outside, as you, uh, as you described, to be outside and just take the piss. But he just had new ideas. Now, the book is the
4: legacy. Um, why did you think it is important now, at this particular time, to really expose this legacy of Lee Bowry?
3: I had a talk with uh, a guy called Le Pustra. He works in Berlin. And I really wanted to interview him because um, it's kind of the reason why I did the book. Um, And he describes describes the 30s in Berlin before the Second World War. And he describes in his interviews that we don't have to be naive. Our rights can be taken out now. And it was... Um, for me very important that in the book um, the legacy of Lee Power is of course about Lee himself, what he did and what he gave us, but at the same time he was also a symbol of queerness so it's the, and in a time when there wasn't even the word queer, so he stepped out of the labels and I like that, but at this moment I really think it's important that we know our history we have to know our queer history. So I chose people who can, uh, about this history. There's a woman, co- uh, 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 um, yeah, she talks about Martha P. Johnson, and she knows about the history. And Lee is history, but he's so important that we think, oh, like all the Instagram people, eh? they put a filter on, and sometimes, not that sometimes, a lot of times, like, Lee, but you don't even know him. And I think it's too, he was too important that we just forget about him and just move on with a new filter on Instagram. And think, he had a message.
4: I think one thing you said there is really, really, really important, and that is that rights can be given and rights can be taken away. Yeah. And that's something that I think many of us forget, that the situation that we're in at the moment might seem comfortable, but as 30s Germany uh, yes. really showed, yeah. <laughs> it can turn.
3: It but, is. And also what I like to, in the legacy thinking is just like, it's not about looks. It's about the message. It's about, it's about the content. It's about the right to be who you are and to uh, step out of the values as we are dictated in. So sexuality, identity, everything, this is queerness that you have to right to be yourself. And it's also an answer to the Instagram culture, from Look At Me and Another Follower and Please Like Me. How
4: did you choose the artists um, that you wanted in the book? Was it on the basis of highlighting different aspects of Lee or or was it actually artists that you were fundamentally
3: interested in? No, it was just like the first question, because I, I approached hundreds of them. And the first question is just, I just look at their Instagram accounts And at their look, so the looks they put on. And when I saw, oh, this is a little bit about Lee, but do they know Lee Bowery? Well, 90% don't even know about him. They don't know where they came from. So I picked the people that knew about him. So then it moved on. So then I had to choose, okay, you have to be willing as an Instagram artist to talk about your history. Because... Half of those people I really like to interview didn't want that. They were just, some people were even mad at me that they had to refer to Lee Bowery as an inspiration because, the, no, I'm totally original. I think about it all the time. It's me, of course. We are standing on the shoulders of other people. So I chose, at the end, I chose people who are very interesting, know about their history, can talk about the history, and wanted to be part of a book that really um, puts our admiration and our gratitude to what Li we did in his time without an internet stage, with just the market where we could um, buy some textile. That was it. I found your questions um, really
4: well thought out in terms of asking uh, the people not only about their own art, but also asking about what they would talk to him about uh if he was alive today just want to go through a couple of people so i'm going to look at my notes uh louis peralta talked what we talked about earlier about lee's craftsmanship which was often yeah. often uh overlooked what did he say about it
3: well louis was a wonderful guy still is uh, because his mother is really an influence his mother is really a um, technical perfect uh, woman in fashion so um What I liked about Louis is that he said he was a craftsman. Some people don't see that, but I know what it takes to get into this kind of stuff. And he tried it himself, because in the book, there was a picture of him in a costume like Lee Bowie, and not because it was just a thrill for him, but he wanted to find out, how can you breathe in this costume? And I like that. And he, he saw his... Now is a technical um the technical uh, almost perfection of me, and the willing to experiment. That's a really
4: interesting point, because those costumes were very constrictive, sometimes, amazingly constrictive. And as you yeah. said, you know, having to have a battery pack uh, for the light bulbs. and quite often, other sort of things tied around his body underneath in order for this to work. And during his, you know, um, performances, the one that the birth that you mentioned with Nicola Bowery, where she's inside his, his stomach, fake stomach as it was, um, with blood. Um, so what did he discover about himself, Louis, when when he was in that sort of constricted atmosphere Uh, Mm -hmm. of the costume. And what did you feel you discovered about Lee, maybe that you didn't know before?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I because in the interview, Lee Bowery told me, well, of course, it's a lot of time and nobody would walk around in this costume. My ideas will never get a following. They went with three people and a friend of them and Lee Bowery to London. They were just kids at 17. And they try to leave Australia. All the stupid things, all the abuse, we have to leave it behind. This is our adventure. And this, this has changed. Yeah? So I thought, how is it possible, because Louis uh, Peralta lives in New York, so how is it possible that this black guy uh, who does a lot about fashion wants to make this costume of Lee Bowery from decades ago and wants to walk around in it? And Louis told me, and said, well, it takes a lot of time, craftsmanship, but still, how did Lee do it? Because Louis could only walk for five or ten minutes in it. He couldn't breathe. So I liked it because, oh, yes, how was it possible that Lee Bowery went out in these costumes for hours and dancing and still breathing? Why didn't he faint? I don't know.
4: And then with Paola, I hope I get the name right, oh, no. um with um, her work being a mixture between nature and uh, humanity. One thing that uh, she describes is um, as the work bringing an extraordinary moment to an ordinary day. And yeah. if anything describes Lee when you see him, it is that extraordinary moment in an ordinary day,
3: isn't it? Yeah. And Paola, she's uh, come from Italy. And when you look at what she's doing, it's not a little bit like Leah. It's, it's beautiful. I really think it's beautiful. There was no shock element in it like Lee did. But what she described is, yeah, it's like the sun coming out. And she admired this in him as a little girl. And she built her fashion, her craft, womanship, on this idea. You can make a little bit of sunshine on a rainy day. So an extraordinary moment in an ordinary day. And she puts it so nice into words. And it's true. One of the fascinating
4: things about uh, Lee, and I'm going to say his career, but his life in, in essence, yeah. was, of course, when Lucy and Freud, painted Lee, and we got the man behind the mask. We got a naked person, something that, unless you were intimate with Lee, you were never, ever going to see. This was, you know, something completely different, the lowering of the mask. And in a way, it made him extremely vulnerable. And you talk about, or you you have an interview with Luke um, Slyker, mm-hmm. and he, they, um, also... Talks about how he, they viewed that painting. Can you tell me what he, they said? Yeah, look, as a very
3: young guy. So I was amazed that he knew Lee Bowie. So, um, uh, looking bold, growing an illness, a disease, and what he liked about Lee is that he was just open about his boldness. And that was very funny because look, really admired these paintings because. It's just extremes. Huh? The other extreme is you didn't recognize him because I saw Lee without any mask and I didn't recognize him because I only knew how he was masked. So this was the other side, the Lee Bowie as an artist, as we knew him. And the other side was just a naked model of Lucian Freud, but as open and without any shame as well. And he really describes it and it really. Thinking about there was once a man called Lee Bowie, and he was like an artist and he felt no shame of being bold. This was just look, his thinking. And I, of course, uh, uh, gave all the interviews to Brownwin, the sister of Lee, said that's not true. He wasn't bold. He saved his head because he couldn't otherwise he couldn't wear those marks. And I loved it because it's just, I love those kind of things. That you have fantasy and hope, of course, and reality. Lee used to come to the studio
4: with Nicola after mm-hmm. a, a night where I presume he was out all night clubbing. Um, and he'd turn up at something like eight in the morning because the show was recorded at nine, which was you know too early for everyone. And yeah. uh, he would mm-hmm. turn up with Nicola, who eventually uh, became his wife, as in terms of being the guardian uh, yeah. of his legacy um, and, and of his costumes. He wanted someone who, w- who would really look after his work and, and trusted her. But Lee sexuality was difficult to define because Nicola, um, I don't know if she does today, but she's always believed that Lee was really her partner, a sexual partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee was obviously queer. So, what is this discrepancy in 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 his identity? Have you did you ever uncover anything around this?
3: What I loved about Lee is that he said, um, "I don't use my appearance to attract other people sexually." So that was very important for me. Because I came in uh, from a world, Dutch gay movement, that everybody, the men, tried to do this. Because this was the code. Right? This was the norm. This was the message. When we would go out as gay men, you have to dress and you have to be there really for other men. So you have to try to attract them. So I really was amazed that really uh, we to- really talked about this. Right? So it was a totally different given view and message I I knew before that. With me, he never talked about his sexuality, but I could see really that he missed Trojan, his boyfriend. So this, I think, because he stopped the interview, I don't want to talk about this. And he was totally different. And it was the only time, because I visited performances. Sometimes he performed in Amsterdam. I went there. So it was just like, this was the love of his life. I don't know about his sexuality. I know from Anne and from Bronwyn and from, of course, the book of Soutili, that he was also had his little heart. He was also a little uh, hurted child in this. So I don't know what I loved about uh, Soutili, because I uh, sent her the book and there were a little bit years wrong, so I corrected that. And she said, "No, don't think about it. No matter, Lee tried to confuse everybody." And I think that's true. He would love this kind of thing. We don't know. Maybe that's why right. we don't know. No, Lee would
4: play games with everyone. He would. Like, yeah. He would talk he would about someone him. there, then talk about you here, and he'd, you know, yeah. tell you little snippets of what he thought about uh, people. What wasn't necessarily true. He would. He would. He wouldn't oh, mix he everything up.
3: A lot, yeah. It's
4: true. So he was like a terror in that way. Um, <laughs> now, uh, one thing I really appreciated in the book was the Australians um, uh, that have been influenced by Lee that you've interviewed, such as Brendan de la Haye.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
4: um, and that really highlighted a different aspect for me about his background and that the Australia, that where he came from, and I have to quote it, was um, very unusual to live outside i say of the norm um yeah. is that why is that that is the reason why lee left yeah. i presume is that yeah. also the 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 trigger in a sense for him to become so, so extreme and therefore such mm-hmm. a, a great
3: artist I think so. The people I I spoke in 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 from Australia, like like Brandon, but also the Huxleys, those really amazing duo, and they talk about well, Australia is all about being normal, but at the same time, Lee is really honored by the Australian art culture. There's even a theater named after him. So it's just like huh, how could, but you have to be like. The Dutch painter, i always said, you have to die before they recognize you. Eh? So it's just like, I think he had to leave. And Holt also said is that they left from Australia to London to be themselves, not to be someone else, but to be themselves. They couldn't explore their ideas in the art colleges in Australia, in Melbourne. So they had to leave. And um, what Brandon says in the book is really that he admired Lee because Lee was the symbol that you could even be outrageous when you're from Australia. And I don't know Australia at all, but I can imagine that. So for Brandon, it's like, oh, it's possible.
4: I mean, there are other people mentioned in the book, and you mentioned one earlier of uh, Martha P. Johnson, but also Divine, Klaus Nomi, Mm -hmm. Keith Haring, and... um, I remember actually seeing Divine in a North London club called Bolts or Lasers, a sort of very uh, stereotypical uh, gay club. On one side, men in lumberjack shirts, and on the other side, the Lee Mm -hmm. Bowery crowd. So it was always like a a weird sort of mix of people. And, you know, like Boy George would be there, George Michael, Jimmy Somerville. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I saw Divine there, and Mm -hmm. Lee was there. And I've never, ever seen in my life such an excited (laughs) five-year-old. I mean, it was explosive. I mean, he was taking everything in that Divine did on stage. How important were these people that you mentioned, and I just mentioned them there, to Lee's development, either as an artist or
3: as a person? Very important. It's very nice that you um, not compare, but, but you describe the reaction of Lee to Divine. I saw Divine, and I was just a small kid, and I danced with Divine on the stage. And later, I came to Divine because I thought that Divine would be a persona on stage, off stage. But it was just the same with Lee. Divine, being himself, was just a very kind guy, very friendly. But on stage, he was a monster, really a monster. He was totally unpredictable. And his, his songs were just like a machine gun on disco. It was just like a hot ball. And, But it was just the same. Eh? It was just the same uh, that, they hit, that they had. And I can imagine why Lee really admired Divine. And those people like, um, because uh, Jimmy Summerfield wrote the foreword of my book when I uh, interviewed uh, uh, gay young people. And these people, I think it's very important that we recognize them, that we just know where where we we are coming from, not only as a queer community, but because there were people, and still are, but there were people who died for us. Martha P. Johnson died for us. Um, uh, Lee did something outrageous, divine, did something outrageous against the the proper taste of the world. And it was very difficult. What a lot of people see now is just like um, a YouTube clip or a song or just no, these were people really fighting for themselves. It's for us. So it's very, in for me, it's very important that we recognize them, that we describe their world. And I think being at an age, an older age in the gay movement, because I'm still in, um, in, in the gay movement, I can tell those stories.
4: The One of the things I think Divine influence was um, his performance in Minty mm. with Useless Man, yeah, which was
3: a hit in Holland, wasn't it? Yes, and it's still a collector's item in Holland. So I don't sell it. But it was really true. And well, it was just, I remember it on the radio because uh, I knew Nibali, of course, and then he was in a rock band. And I I don't like the song itself, but it's so funny. It's just like, uh, uh, what I can remember is that he wrote it as a parody of the Coca-Cola adverts. Something like this. So it's just like, how can this song become a hit in Holland? I don't know. No, it was a parody uh, there are a lot of remixes out of it. Eh? So it's just, I don't know. But no, it
4: it's, it's fantastic. Now, um, you've released a book and a flip book, as yeah. I understand. Yeah. Why did you want to do a flip book? And tell me what you were able to then put mm-hmm. into this different mm-hmm.
3: version so people can enjoy. Because um, um, I had a problem. Because the book is static. And Lee Babu wasn't static at all. So when I uh, did the research, uh, I first collected all those videos. And the videos like, like um, the, the, the interview with the closed show on the BBC, but also the video from the latest um, uh, uh, exhibition from him. I put it all together, but I couldn't do anything with it. So I really was training, training, training for months because making a flip book is very hard to do. But I would love it because when you um, open the flip book, Lee is talking to you. And I loved it because this was so important and it took me a lot of time to get there. When you are on the third page of the book, suddenly Lee comes from his doorstep and he says, remember me, Lee Bowie. I love that. And this is what the book is all about.
4: Oh, brilliant! So, where can people um, buy this book and
3: they get available get the uh, flip book as well? Yeah, it's it's on uh, the 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 title is just the website, the legacy of Lee Bowery, and there will be um, for the Benelux, It's the hardcover version because it's print on demand. I paid everything myself, printing on demand. But next week there will be the paperback version, and that's global, from Australia to Turkey, from the UK to Italy. So that's, that's really a black and white version of this. But the flipbook is nice because you can enter this flipbook everywhere you are. And it's colorful and you can see all the pictures of the people. And their, I loved it because I found the interview with the father, Tom, of Lee Bowery and his sister, Brownwin with the opening of the Bowery Theater. It's such an amazing interview. And I couldn't do it in the book, of course. Well, the book is
4: amazing. I mean, it really is. And I thoroughly not only enjoyed enjoyed it in the aspect that, for me, it was part of my, uh, I was going to say youth, but I was in my 20s. <laughs> it's part of my, you know, years in, in Britain that I thoroughly enjoyed seeing Lee around and uh, communicating with him and enjoying uh, his um, art. And I really want to end, Bamba, on something that you've asked everyone else, but what would you talk
3: to him about if he was alive today? Never ask that question. <laughs> For me, that's, nice. that's the nicest thing as a journalist. Eh? What would I say to him? I would love to ask his opinion about all the copies. So I would love to look with him at, like, not the copies, but the inspiration there. Eh? The work Lady Gaga does and Jean-Paul and Walter von Donk, and everyone. What did he think? Because in the book, he says in the interview, my ideas will never get a following. But it was not true. And it's just like you know, when you could write from the dead and he said, my God, people are still remembering me because I thought I was the only one. He designed a little bit for other people, but not those looks for himself. So I'm very curious about it how would he um think about all the people who are inspired by him in their work That's I don't um, think he would, he would would he would even understand this
4: I mean it's obviously obviously a work of passion a work that you know you have really uh, spent years sort of developing in your mind you can really tell that it's something very close to your heart and it's a very special book so Bamba Delva thank you very much
3: thank you very much yes Steve up
4: there is an interview I recommend down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews and here is where you can connect